Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV on the website and also on this podcast. We have a couple of provocative films to talk to you about this week. John Paul Gwynn will be here to discuss Saltburn, Emerald Fennell's postmodern take on the talented Mr. Ripley, and that stars Barry Kagan and Jacob Elordi and Rosamund Pike and Richard E. Grant and a bunch of other people. That's a terrific and provocative film. Even more terrific and even more provocative is May December from Todd Haynes, which recently debuted on Netflix. And it's a movie sort of about childhood sexual abuse, but about uh, Hollywood's exploitation of ordinary people. It stars Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore and is really good. And Stephen Garrett will be here to talk to me about that. But first, we're going to talk about politics a little bit. It happens sometimes on this site. Uh, There's been this phenomenon recently of uh, people talking about a Hollywood blacklist involving the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, Last week, Rolling Stone published a piece that details a recent and modest trend of Hollywood agents dropping a few clients here and there and of clients dropping agents because of impolitic statements they've made about the Hamas-Israel conflict. The piece made a claim that I've seen floating around a lot, quote, The ways Hollywood leaders have retaliated against any criticism of the Israeli government during the current conflict could start to resemble a new Hollywood blacklist. You know, but could it? The Hollywood blacklist, which was in place in various forms during the height of the McCarthy era uh, and the anti-communist Red Scare, destroyed or severely damaged the careers and lives of hundreds of extremely talented people, including uh, Dalton Trumbo, most famously, but also Lillian Hellman, Paul Robeson, Dorothy Parker, Ruth Gordon, Dashiell Hammett, Judy Holliday, Carson Kanan, Gypsy Rose Lee, Arthur Miller, Francis Farmer, Ozzie Davis, Ruby D, Richard Wright, and many others. Many of the silently accused had done nothing more vicious than attend a union rally or some low-rent Southern California pinko house party, or maybe they donated some money. Most likely, they simply sympathized with working people, and most of them did nothing at all. A lot of them were, not surprisingly, Jewish. At the moment, the career toll for the new quote-unquote blacklist is one high-profile CAA agent who has not lost her job and retains the support of her most prominent client, Tom Cruise, Oscar-winning actress Susan Sarandon, and most prominently, young Melissa Barrera, the star of the last two Scream movies, who has received word that the franchise will no longer require her services. Spyglass Media Group, which produces the Scream movies, fired Barrera after she posted on social media that Israel is guilty of, quote, ethnic cleansing and genocide in Gaza. She also reposted an article from a publication called Jewish Currents, which said that the West, quote, distorts the Holocaust to boost the Israeli arms industry. A Spyglass spokesperson told Variety's Tatiana Siegel, whose reporting on this issue has been excellent, by the way, Spyglass's stance is unequivocally clear. We have zero tolerance for anti-Semitism or the incitement of hate in any form, including false references to genocide, ethnic cleansing, Holocaust distortion, or anything that flagrantly crosses the line into hate speech. Now, whether Melissa Barrera committed an act of hate speech or just didn't fully understand an issue that didactic but well-informed political observers like Glenn Greenwald and Ben Shapiro bat around like a ping-pong ball every day on X— The fact that she will no longer be starring in Scream 7 hardly constitutes a blacklist. She openly made a statement of questionable value. The producers openly disagreed with her, and she lost her job. What made the 1950s blacklist so insidious is that studios conducted it as an open secret. 
They forced actors and writers to snitch on their friends, and not everyone had the backbone to resist. Nothing even remotely like that is going on right now. We know full well which side people are on. In another high-profile incident, UTA Talent Agency, uh, jettisoned Susan Sarandon after she said, while wearing a ridiculous Simpsons jacket at a pro-Palestine rally, quote, there are a lot of people afraid of being Jewish at this time, and we are getting a taste of what it feels like to be a Muslim in this country. Can we really be shocked and appalled that her agents don't want to work with her after hearing Sarandon say this? If Sarandon had criticized Israel in, say, July or last year, no one would have even noticed. But after October 7th, it is an enormous moral failing to accentuate and even mock the terror that ordinary Jews around the world are experiencing after the Hamas attacks. Jews do not run Hollywood, but it's not news that there are a lot of Jewish people who work in the entertainment business in Los Angeles. A pro-Hamas college professor murdered an innocent 66-year-old Jewish man who was waving an Israeli flag during a rally in the San Fernando Valley earlier this year. If Susan Sarandon wants to be on that side of the war at home, I'm sure Hamas would welcome her face in one of its propaganda videos. She is not on a blacklist. She publicly said something anti-Jewish and her Jewish co-workers and their allies didn't like it, and now she needs new co-workers. Then there's the case of Maha Dakil, co-head of film at CAA, who wrote on Instagram, quote, What's more heartbreaking than witnessing genocide? Witnessing the denial that genocide is happening. This caused no less a liberal personage than Aaron Sorkin, the kind of guy who definitely would have been blacklisted in the 1950s, to leave CAA for the less anti-Jewish waters of the William Morris Agency. But even in his parting letter, he called Dekiel, quote, a great agent. Dekiel then apologized on social media and still has her job as of this writing. Three incidents of speech that colleagues don't like much do not constitute a blacklisting trend. Critically, the federal government supported and tacitly enforced the 1950s Hollywood blacklist. Washington specifically created the House on american Activities Committee, to investigate alleged subversive activities on the part of private citizens, particularly those making entertainment in Hollywood. A government-sponsored investigation with subpoena power is far more chilling than the good judgment of people who don't want to work with those who spew objectionable ideas. But this conflict is definitely showing us who in Hollywood is made of what stuff. Some signed open letters calling for a ceasefire, while others signed open letters calling for the release of hostages. But the pro-Israeli Hollywood types are not about to start setting up star chambers for the ceasefire types. They all have to work together on superhero movies. And ordinary L.A. Jews are too busy hiding their mezuzahs and trying to decide whether or not to send their B'nai Mitzvah children to the anti-Semitic hives that American universities have become. Maha Dekeel still has her job, awkward as lunch meetings may be from now on. Susan Sarandon still has her millions and her Academy hardware. As for Melissa Barrera, she's still young. I'm sure she'll find redemption in a Hallmark Christmas movie in the coming years, and the press can then report on how she bravely overcame being the only person on the new Hollywood blacklist. Okay, that's the end of my rant. I hope you enjoyed it and found it provocative, and we'll be right back to talk to John Paul Gwynn about Saltburn right after this. Well, why don't you come home with me? Come to Saltburn. why Felix likes you so much. You're so, um, real. Oliver, I have a complete and utter horror of ugliness ever since I was very young. I don't know why. I mean, because you're a terrible person.
if we've learned anything by going to the movies in the last few years, it's that rich people are decadent and depraved and deserve everything that's coming to them. And we have another movie out now, a popular film, uh, that uh, operates under a very similar theme. And that is Saltburn, which is the second movie from Emerald Fennell, or Fennell, I'm not, I think it's Fennell, uh, who made Promising Young Woman a few years ago, and this is her second feature. And J.P. Gwynn re- uh, reviewed Saltburn for us, and he's here today to talk to me about it. Hello. 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 Yes, yeah, so as you mentioned in your review, Saltburn is a very horny movie. Oh, it's horny. It, I mean, it's a lot. there's a lot of real kinky sex stuff in this movie. There's a lot of... Uh, Tonguing the bathtub drain, and we want to. We don't want to give away the, the sort of the end sex scene because that that will give away a plot point. But there's some real kinky stuff, and it, our main character, uh, played by Barry Kagan, has sex with everybody he can, pretty much in this manor house of Saltburn. Uh, every every body and everything that he can. Yeah, every uh, he's he's like come into my orifice and uh, and uh, pay pay a visit. Um, and he he is he is a, he is a dirty bird. Um, but this is really a movie about um, to some extent about class conflict. Although it's interesting, um, I guess I don't want to give away this secret either. But but you know Barry Kagan is not as wealthy as the family in Saltburn. He's the he's a what they call a scholarship student at Oxford, and he latches on to a handsome young man named Felix, played by. Jacob Elordi last seen playing Elvis in uh, Sofia Coppola's Priscilla, and and then it's sort of it talented Mister Ripley's out from there. Yeah, it's it's a hard movie to discuss without spoilers. Yeah, I mean, I think they give away enough to give away that he's a scholarship guy hanging out with rich people, like really, really rich, titled people, um, and uh, things are going to get horny, and then things are going to get dangerous as well. And that that's kind of that's kind of where they they lead you to, and it's very very talented, Mister Ripley esque. It's sort of a, it's sort of a talented Mister Ripley set in Downton Abbey, it's, right? Yeah, I mean, it's very like, the dynamics of it are very very talented, Mister Ripley, uh, very much so. Which is we I saw she did a Emerald Fennell did a a pre show clip thing at Alamo for yeah I saw that too yeah about her influences on it, and I was surprised to not see talented Mister Ripley in there. At all. Well, she didn't want to say I ripped off the talented Mr. Ripley. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he did. It was, you know, he got a few books out of it. <laughs> so why not? Right. But but she didn't want to say that per se. She mentioned um, the kind hearts and coronets, which I don't really see. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a, a 1950s British movie called The Servant, which looks similar. And then right. The Bling Ring, which I, I guess, I because mean, you've got sort of, you know, insouciant kids at play. I get it. And also I get with the look of the movie and the feel like there was a lot, there's a lot of care and attention put into the way the movie looks and it looks wonderful. It looks brilliant the whole way through. There's not a wasted frame really, you know, every, you know, every shot is very considered. Um, I, I found that it's, it's very derivative of the talented Mr. Ripley. Like I didn't feel like it had a lot of original things to say, but it was fun to watch and it was quite wicked. And there were some great performances in it. I, you know, Barry Kagan was good and creepy and very physical in this. You know, the guy, that guy is a an actor's actor, to say the least. Um, but I, I especially liked, and I don't usually like this actor much, Rosamund Pike as the matriarch, I guess, of this family. But she's really like a, a 90s party girl who married up, married a lord, 
uh, this fop played by Richard E. Grant, who likes to hold you know medieval themed parties so he can wear his vintage suit of armor. I get, I get, I could wear my suit of armor. Yeah, he's he's. I mean, I love Richard E. Grant, and he's fantastic in this too. Uh, a smaller part than Rosamund Pike, but uh, but she, I thought she, you know, her her part had. I don't know if it had a lot of layers, but she played it perfectly. Like, and she knew exactly what she was doing and exactly what she was saying uh, at all times. And I also, you know, Jacob Elordi is just, that guy is a movie star and then some. I don't know if you saw Priscilla or not. I haven't seen Priscilla yet, but I'm, I'm a big fan of Euphoria. Euphoria, and he's in that. But, you know, I think you will agree, even if you haven't seen Priscilla, that his character in this film isn't anything like Elvis Presley. No. <laughs> so, you can, but, but his character in Elvis Presley, in, in Priscilla, was exactly like Elvis Presley. So he can play Elvis and he can also play like, uh, I would consider, you know, the character of Felix to be a very likable and kind, rich society guy. He is. I mean, he's in, he's entitled and sometimes a bit clueless in what he does as kindnesses um, and which could be inconsiderate of other people. But ultimately, he's he's magnetic, which they started out telling you that. But he is kind. He is he is likable. Um, and it is very, very different from the character that he plays on Euphoria, which I feel like this movie in Euphoria, it, it, it'll appeal to a lot of the same people. Um, but, you know, Nate in Euphoria is pretty much a sociopath um, and is you know, attractive, but God, wonderful to just hate. Uh, whereas here, he's, he's just he's somebody that you kind of want to hang out with in a way. Yeah, he's very charming and uh, and, and not evil. In any way, like he, he, I think he has a good heart. Um, that said, the Barry Kagan character does not have a good heart. Does not seem to have a heart at all. Is sort of like a lizard. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I found him to be kind of that. His performance is very good, but I felt like I wanted to know a little bit more about what was going on behind him. Then, and I feel like I got that in uh, any of the Ripley books or movies or anything. My from talented Mr. Ripley with Matt Damon to the one with Alain Delon or to my American friend with Dennis Hopper. And I didn't really feel like it got that here. No, he's a little enigmatic. And I think that's a fault of the, um, it's a fault of the screenplay. You know, I think em- Emerald Fennell, uh, her goal is to, um, she's an outrageous filmmaker, right? Her promising young woman was, was similar in some ways. Like her main character was magnetic and weird and interesting, but thin. Um, and I think that's the same here. It's like, you know, there's sort of a, they're like a, a poster board for whatever ideas she's trying to get across or whatever, you know, outrageous points she's trying to make. And, she, you know, but I think that Saltburn is a much better movie. We sort of pull the pole than Promising Young Woman. It's less didactic. Um, it's it's funnier. I think it's, you could see Emerald Fennell take a big leap forward here as a filmmaker it's, I mean, not that promising young woman looks like it was shot on an iPhone or anything like that. Far from it. But this movie, the pacing until maybe the last 20 minutes is really, really, really considered and right on the money. And like we already said, it looks beautiful. Uh, but I think the script was a little bit better for promising young woman. There's some big holes here in terms of the thriller side of things in Saltburn. It also takes a little bit too long to get to Saltburn. And if a movie's called Saltburn, take me to Saltburn within like 12 to 15 minutes. Yeah, it takes about half an hour. I will say, I thought the scenes in Oxford, the sort of first act, which all takes place in Oxford, felt very uh, real and lived in. I mean, there obviously was shot there. 
And I would imagine that Emerald Fennell either went to Oxford or knows people who did because it felt, I felt like I was a student at Oxford, which is an you know experience that, of course, that I never got to have. So that was kind of cool in a way, especially when you compare it to like the holdovers, which also takes place, takes place at a boarding school and just feels very sort of antiseptic and dry. This made going to Oxford seem alienating, but also kind of appealing at the same time. I felt most of the Oxford stuff to be pretty good. I didn't like the other alienated guy that kind of uh, latches on. <laughs> to... Where did he go? What happened? He just vanished. But... He just vanishes. He poofs away. <laughs> but I mean, the thing about it is like all the fault, uh, any of the faults that Saltburn really has, it's still really entertaining. It's really yeah. fun. It's really outrageous. And it is the kind of, there's not that many movies that come along where you sit there and grab each other and go, I can't believe they, they did that. It's provocative, and and I, I you know I don't know if you follow this uh, you know discussion on like you know the internet or film Twitter or whatever what the how there's no sex in movies anymore. I'm like, well, all you got to do is see Saltburn, and that goes out the window. And and it's a good case for that too. It was a fun movie going experience, uh, even with the parts of the movie that I didn't like. It was, and the sex wasn't like you know melodramatic, you know fake sex. It was like weird, kinky. twisted um sex i I wouldn't have wanted to see it with my parents Uh, no i wouldn't have wanted i i I mean i I think i would i would have gone to see it with my wife but i I certainly i I don't know i wouldn't have even wanted to see it with you (laughs) (laughs) and we've been to the movies together before but you know it just would have made me uncomfortable Halfway through the movie, I'd be like, why are you sitting on me? <laughs> there, were lo- there were a lot of people in that movie who were uncomfortable. And that was part of the fun of watching it, was hearing these people in the audience going, oh, <laughs> at certain times. Yes. Yeah. Because this wasn't a young, it's like it was, the audience wasn't that young. You know, there was a lot of sort of middle-aged moviegoers there. And yeah, there was there was some discomfort. And so, you know, if you're into that, and if you, if you want to see some sex in a movie, and you want to see some discomfort, and you like the talented Mr. Ripley and want to see a somewhat new version of it uh, with the twist, uh, Saltburn is for you. I JP recommends it 10 to 15% more highly than I do, but I, I certainly didn't hate it. Yeah, which that's that's about right. All right, JP Gwynn, have, uh, have a, a non-kinky time wherever, whatever you're doing tonight, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, thanks for having me. How do you choose your roles? I want to find a character that's difficult to, on the surface, understand. Were they born or were they made? Why can't we talk about it? If we're really as in love as we say we are? Insecure people are very dangerous, aren't they? Speaking of sex in movies, uh, as we're talking yesterday on Netflix, a film called May December uh, premiered. This is a new movie from Todd Haynes, who directed uh, Carol and Far From Heaven and Safe. He's directed a bunch of films, uh, not quite indie films, but, you know, art, Hollywood art films. Um, Stars Natalie Portman and Julie. They're they're mostly indie. Indie, they get some, they get, rec- yeah, they're, they're, you know, he doesn't direct blockbusters. He, you know, Stephen Garrett is here, by the way. Hello, Stephen. 
Oh, hey. Sorry. <laughs> he, Sorry. I should have waited for my interview. It pop, pops I in. can't wait. That's okay. Well, May, December is an excellent film. Basically, the premise is that Julianne Moore plays a woman. She's in her early 60s, like, like Julianne Moore is. And uh, she's married to a much younger man who she seduced when he was uh, in the seventh grade and working as a stock boy at the pet store that she was managing. And um, she went to prison, had his baby, and they had some more babies. Look, th- there's a lot of melodrama involving their relationship. And Natalie Portman plays a an actor, a Hollywood actor, uh, from a uh, like a Grey's Anatomy-like uh, show, doctor show called Nora's Ark, which is a, a hilarious name. And she comes goes to, um, they live in on Tybee Island off uh, the coast of Savannah, Georgia. And she goes there to sort of, uh, shadow Julianne Moore because she's going to play her in an indie film. So it's an indie film about an actor shadowing a character who's going to be in an indie film. And, you know, so there's a lot of meta there, but the movie doesn't ever really feel meta. You know, it's like, it's kind of just very naturalistic and, and not super arch. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting. It's so much about repression and about the sheen of normalcy. And I think the the film and the filmmaking kind of reflects that. It looks it looks like a just an average family and an average well not average like a a good looking family in a good looking small town in a beautiful southern island you know right and um, it looks very uh, idyllic yeah it looks idyllic but boy dude then the mail comes and she gets a box of shit right <laughs> right. And she's something's like, up, right? And she's like, "Oh, it's just a box of shit. We used to get, we used to get." Uh, she's a, uh, she's a child molester. She's on the sex offenders registry. She's a convicted sex offender. And you know, and it's like, and everyone has to live in this town with her. Everyone has to live in this town with this family and pretend like they're normal, <laughs> and, and they're not normal. And you know, and, and it's just odd. Her like her ex husband and his family and and the kids that they had together are all still floating around. That their kids are of this uh, of this couple. There's they have three of them, um, and they're all floating around, and they you know they all have to everyone's pretending like things are normal. And then Natalie Portman walks in um, this really like you know broken, strange Hollywood person, um, and to observe, but she's got her own set of uh, of per- perversions <laughs> and issues. It's a little redundant to say broken, strange Hollywood person. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, but, but you know, like everyone um, in this situation kind of has their sexual issues. Like they're all kind of, it's all kind of unspoken. Whereas Natalie Portman blows into town and she's got, she's got as many sexual issues as all of them put together. And, and, you know, she, uh, they, it comes out in strange ways, right? Like there's a scene where she, um, She's speaking to one of the children's drama classes in high school. And she talks about what it's like to have sex on screen. And uh, she she way overshares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, way overshares. It's kind of weird. And there's this other scene where she's uh, early on uh, looking at uh, videos uh, uh, that uh, the casting agent sent of potential uh, young boys, 13-year-old boys that she would be acting against in the uh, this indie movie. And she's looking at him, and, and she's right. like, no, and, and not, she says, they're not, they're not sexy, sexy enough. enough. <laughs> like what? Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a fascinating movie. She's weirdly broken in her own way, and Julianne Moore is is fantastically, extravagantly broken in the most uh, interesting, uh, absorbing way. You know, right? I mean, she is she is controlling. She is obsessed with uh, surface appearances. She wants everybody to look the way they should. She gives her whatever uh, kids uh, graduating presents, the daughter, uh, she gives her a scale, which I thought was hilarious. 
Like, what kind of present that? And she's like, you try to go through life without a scale and see how that works out. You're just like, what? It's wonderful. She's so, oh, my God, she's terrifying. She is terrifying um, and, and, and not on the surface is sympathetic, but actually not sympathetic because she's extremely broken and has, uh, but then there's all these interesting side characters, right? Like she has, there's a son she has from her previous marriage who's floating around town. He's kind of this Luche uh, lounge, chain smoking lounge singer. And uh, he, he pops in occasionally to drop some uh, bits of questionable truth and wisdom to Natalie Portman. Um, and you know, there's this lawyer, this, this lawyer, this New York lawyer who represented Julianne Moore in the court case. He has a, a really hilarious scene. And then he's, then he's kind of done with, and then you just have like Natalie Portman, like going off to, I love how she like is, is staying in this like gorgeous Savannah mansion. And she refers to it as quaint, know, exactly. you know, housing that like for the most of us would be like once, a, <laughs> once in a, once in a lifetime. <laughs> Quaint. But we haven't even talked about uh, Charles Melton. Charles Melton plays, you know, he's, he's, here he is. Like, this is a guy, this is a guy who's like, you know, his previous major acting credit was Riverdale, right? And here he is, like, going toe to toe with two, like, you know, serious actors, like Oscar winning actors. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's one of those performances you don't know if uh, Todd Haynes is eliciting it or if he's rising to the occasion because he's working with such incredibly talented. Uh, actors, or if it's just a, the 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 role fits him like like a glove because he's he's a real innocent. He's a damaged innocent. He's a boy man um, who is a loving father and yet seems very arrested and kind of hapless and sweet, but like really kind of befuddled and befuddling. And like a kid, he's like a kid almost. You know, so it's like it's like he's got kids, but he almost seems like he could be he could be. But he's like he could be their sibling and he's the same age as Julianne Moore's other kids. Um, in fact, was a classmate of one of them. And so it's like it's like what, you know, and so he's have has to act out this role. It's disturbing, although it's not disturbing in a way that like makes you like hide your face in your hands. Disturbing, you know, it's just kind of like kind of like the slow creeping disturbia because it, I think in essence, this is kind of a comedy. You know, there's a lot of funny stuff in it. And we have to talk about the uh, the musical score. There's these melodramatic piano notes that come in every now and then. <laughs> they do. That like, are, like extremely memorable. Yeah, like lightning strikes or like little, little stings. And um, it's incredibly memorable. And it's funny because the music was from another movie, this movie, The Go-Between, that um, Joseph Losey uh, directed decades ago. And um, Todd Haynes has talked about how he was just watching TCM one night and it came on and the music really struck him. And this was a year or two ago when he was working on the film, uh, May, December, and he used it as temp music and they just kind of ran with it. Cause he, he just said, well, this is, this feels too perfect. It was kind of, he fell in love with this score and had his composer kind of compose the rest of the music accordingly around this. And, and he kept it and uh, it sets, it sets the tone. There's this God early on in the movie, there's a scene where Julian Moore goes to the fridge and then uh, the, the music comes in really strong. And, and then she says what she said. Yeah. It's what she says. I, th- I think we have too many hot dogs. We're out of hot dogs. Or we're out of we're something, something yeah. about hot dogs. So here's the thing. Like, um, Todd Haynes, you know, basically in uh, Far From Heaven made a Douglas Sirk movie, like a 1950s melodrama. It just looks, looks and feels exactly like like a Douglas Sirk movie. And he's a great uh, admirer of the, of those kinds of uh, big melodramatic suburban soap operas that Sirk used to do. And May December um, 
that music kind of gives it that vibe. But this is sort of like a deconstructed version of one of those movies. Like, there aren't a lot of huge crescendos. Everything's very sort of subtle and understated. But the subject matter is something that, uh, you know, Cirque would have tackled in the present day if he were making movies now, right? I know, but I, I think what's interesting is, you know, you would look at this material and maybe Cirque would have done the movie. No, but I think Cirque might have looked at the story and said, oh, well, I'm going to do the actual encounter and the love story and the and when the kid is... 13 and, and Julianne Moore's character is in her twenties. Um, but no, like this is, this is decades later. This is, this is a study of the, of, of what the heat looks like after it's cooled and, and how things have hardened and how things have distorted and the consequences of those actions. It's, it's, it's the aftermath and it's, it's the fallout. Um, and it's the collateral damage to what is a melodramatic story. And I think that's, what's really fascinating too and also how Hollywood and the media exploit these kinds of stories. You know, let you know, you can't I'm not going to give away the ending, but the ending is very ironic and very funny and reminded me a lot of the ending of Tar in, in some ways where it's like you think it's leading up to something big and then it leads up to this like you know, stinger where you're like, "Oh, that is pathetic." Yeah. Yeah. There there is a pathetic side to all of this, you know, and this kind of like the the more kind of sad aspect to it and and um trivial and sad and small and then also this idea of pathos there's there's so much like really this deep undercurrent of like serious incredibly sad drama it's a real tragedy um but the 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 emotions are weirdly cool they flare up every so often but i i think it's a fascinating aspect of todd haynes as a film director is that he is I mean, I mentioned him being kind of, for lack of a better word, post-melodrama and post-camp. There are those sensibilities that inform what he's doing, but there's a sincerity there that breaks through the artifice, even as it embraces the artifice. You know, it's it's a really astonishing film. Agreed. Um, and uh, let's also, uh, you know, on, on a more prosaic note, let's not forget the fact that, you know, this is Natalie Portman playing a kinky weirdo um, in, in a way that she hasn't since Black Swan. And that, that's always a kind of a welcome side of her style, right? So, uh, you know, great performances by Portman and uh, and more, you know, uh, this is kind of, I don't know if this is peak Todd Haynes, but it certainly is one of his. Oh, I think it's definitely peak Todd Haynes with a career that already had a bunch of peaks. And, and Julian Moore, I just wanted to mention quickly, you know, started out in soap operas and has, of course, you know, more than proven herself Oscar worthy of more prestigious dramas. And this is this amazing hybrid of both, I think, you know, it really, it, it, it makes her draw upon both of those experiences in the most beguiling way. Agreed. Agreed. Well, May, December is certainly one of the year's uh, best movies and will be a heavy contender come Oscar time. Steven and I both recommend it highly. Uh, you yeah. should check it out on, on Netflix or, you know, if you live in a, in the kind of place that has a theater near you, it might, might end up in a, on a screen somewhere because Netflix needs to, needs to be on screen so it can get uh, the, the nominations it deserves. Amen. Hope hope it wins all. I hope it wins everything. Should win all the awards. All right, Stephen Garrett. Be nice to kids at pet stores. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> okay, talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Stephen Garrett. May December is now on Netflix and will be in theaters. If you live in a place that has theaters and has the kinds of theaters that show movies like May, December. And I hope you do. Also, thanks to J.P. Gwynn for stopping by to talk to me about Saltburn, which is in most theaters in most cities now. 
and both these films will be getting some consideration come awards time, which is coming soon, and we'll be covering those awards and much, much more on Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV as comprehensively as we possibly can. Thank you so much for reading the site and supporting us, and thank you for listening to this show. I am Neil Pollock. I will talk to you soon. Original Production.